The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripturing is from Isaiah 9, 6, and Psalms 103, verses 11 19. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And, the, and his righteousness to children is children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Winston, for reading that. Fantastic. Well, it's been, I was thinking about it, it's been over a year since I've been in the pulpit here at the Old Hickory location of Christ Prez. Cool Springs has been up and running for about five years now, but um, I was laughing this morning as I was standing here. I kind of had a a deja vu moment uh, because I... um, I've been on the team here at Christ Pres as one of the pastors since 2016, going way back. I used to teach a Sunday school class here, so before we launched Cool Springs, I was here, and uh, when I first got here, I got slotted into the preaching rotation when you all were going through a series in James, and I say you all because I hadn't been here for just a hot minute. That was about it. And, uh, and, and it came time for me to preach, and it was my introduction to this church, and I just thought it would be appropriate for me to just read the text that was assigned to me for my very first sermon in this room. Come now, you rich people, <laughs> weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) That was fun. Listen, you rich people. That was what I got. All right. Well, I'm glad to be here this morning. We're in this series where we're just taking some time unpacking uh, this verse, this pivotal verse in Isaiah about um, who Jesus is uh, and why we celebrate. And look, this has been a hard year. Uh, This church has gone through a lot this year. Our city has gone through a lot this year. And, and when we go through difficult and painful seasons, as we have and as we're still in and many of us in ways that, that people don't even know, you're just, it's part of the season of life that you're in right now, you're suffering. 
One of the things that our hearts cry out for and one of the things that we feel just such a desperate need for is a king. (laughs) And what I mean by that, you may think, I've never wanted a king in my life. Somebody to rule over these things that feel so tenuous and so fragile. Somebody who will hold it all together and hold it all together in a way that is beautiful and hold it all together in a way that that sustains what's good and preserves those life-giving parts of, of what we fear could be lost. And so today we talk about Christ as the everlasting Father. And it's not a reference to God the Father, it's a reference to Christ as King and how He will be King. He will be a King who is like a Father to the people that He is King over. So I asked my son, I have a son who is 23 years old, he's in the army, and he, uh, we kind of have this rule in our house that if I tell stories about my kids from the pulpit, I have to... I have to clear it with them first, um, and they get to they're, and they can only be the hero of the story. And so he gave me permission uh, to tell this story, and so I'm going to tell it to you now. So he's about 11 years old, and he and I had a tradition that we had started. Uh, he's our firstborn, and uh, three daughters after that. And uh, and every once in a while, I would look at him and I would say, "Hey, let's let's go talk like men." And he'd be like, all right. And that meant like burgers and milkshakes. We were going to go out someplace and we were going to talk like men and we were going to sit over these burgers and milkshakes or whatever and we were going to talk about life and the world, friendships, girls, school, work, taking responsibility, all the good things that you talk about father to son. And we had a lull in the conversation and I was just kind of searching for a question And I just said, hey, tell me all the cuss words you know. (laughs) And he looked at me with kind of this mix of excitement, surprise, bewilderment. And he said, really? And I said, son, this is the safest table you've ever sat at in your whole life. Fire away. Turns out, he knew a couple, and he went through a list. It was a modest list, but he, he got to the end, and, he, and, and the end was one of these words. It's kind of a, a tamer word on the spectrum of cuss words. It's one that you probably use. <laughs> it's one of those words that people find useful when they step on a Lego hit their thumb with a hammer. And I I said, (laughs) after he went through his list, some of them, by the way, were not cuss words, and I had to tell him that. That's not actually a cuss word. That's just a word you don't say. Um, I said, where did you learn these? And he said, well, that last one, the the Lego thumb with a hammer word, he said, well, that last one, actually, I I learned from you. (laughs) You remember? And then he and then he got, he got real specific with me. He said, he said, do you remember you were trying to fix that drain that I clogged? And you got frustrated. And I remembered. I remembered. I didn't cuss at him. But what I did do is this. I spoke the word in anger. And I spoke it in anger in his presence. 
and I spoke it in anger in his presence in response to something that he had done. And we both knew it. And I said, I'm so sorry, Chris. I'm so sorry. How did you feel when you heard that word come out of my mouth? And he sat there for a few seconds thinking. And then he blew me away with his response. And I'm not making this up. This is as close to a quote as I think I can possibly get coming from my 11-year-old son there at that burger restaurant. He said, I felt four things. Scared, sad, mad, and confused. Now, those first three, scared, mad, and sad, that's hard to hear. That's hard to hear from your own son. No father wants their son to ever feel scared or mad or sad because of their anger. But it's the last one that cut me the deepest, confused. I'm not typically an angry person. I'm not a rager. I rarely raise my voice. I don't have a short temper. I'm a pretty patient person, I think. And this added to his confusion, this unexpected display of anger. And it got me thinking about this description of Jesus as our everlasting Father, as a reference to the kind of king that He is, and as a description of God the Father. The passage says that the government will be on the given son's shoulders, which is another way of saying he'll be king, right? The government is on whose shoulders? It's on the king's shoulders. And so this is the kind of king he's going to be. So this is a description of that kind of king, that he's an everlasting father, a father who will always be there. That's the kind of description Christ the king has here, one who governs and serves his people with fatherly affection. But for some of us, for many of us perhaps, Hearing God described as an everlasting Father is not necessarily good news based on the kinds of fathers that some of us have had or have not had. Fathers are supposed to be a certain way with their kids. And so my son instinctively knew I was supposed to be his protector, his provider, his teacher, his support. He was supposed to get things like instruction and affection and humor and safety, and wisdom, and love from me. And that little outburst of anger that he witnessed threatened it. 
It threatened that security that his heart was made to depend on from me, his father. A father's anger can be the most frightening kind of anger there is. A broken relationship with a father can be the deepest kind of pain there is. Formative pain. Many of you know this. And so when we read about God being our everlasting Father, it's important that we understand what kind of Father we're talking about here. Because we can take the easy Bible route and we can say, well, it means He's a perfect Father. And we can say, okay, great, yes, and of course that's true. He is. He's a perfect Father. But what does it mean that He's a perfect Father? And what does that have to do with celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ? And looking at this, we turn our attention to Psalm 103, which Winston just read part of for us. Psalm 103 describes the kind of father God is. Our everlasting father, it says, is slow to anger. And he's abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't chide us forever. He doesn't hold on to his anger forever. In other words, Our everlasting Father is not everlastingly angry. How does He prove that His posture toward us isn't one of anger? The psalm says He doesn't deal with us according to what our sins deserve. He doesn't repay us for our transgressions against Him. And now, we're starting to get our feet firmly planted in the meaning of Christmas. Because now we're getting into what Advent is really about. And that is this. Instead of punishing us for our sins, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far He removes our sin from us because as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how expansive His steadfast love is for those who fear Him. We say, okay, He removes our sin from us. How? How does He do this? How does He deal with our transgressions? How does He remove our sin from us? How does He provide the forgiveness that we so desperately need? He atones for it. He atones for our sin. How? Through the righteousness of another. Who's that? To us. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. He sends His own Son to pay the wage of our sin death and to do that for us. This is why we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. This is why we celebrate the baby in the manger, because He came to atone for our sins. Does that upset your holiday cheer that we're thinking about the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior when we peer in 
to that manger. You miss the point of Christmas if you don't. Verse 8 in Psalm 103 is quoting from Exodus 34. And this is Moses here. And it says this, Exodus 34, 6. This is in Psalm 103. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And to this we say, all right, yes, beautiful. That's the kind of God we need. That's the everlasting Father we need. And then you get to the next verse, 34-7, and it says this, God will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Whoa. How can both be possible? Psalm 103 says God works righteousness and justice for all who oppressed. He doesn't wave our sin away. Instead, he deals with it. He judges all of it perfectly. And so how can both exist? How can God by no means, by no means clear the guilty? And how can he also not deal with us according to our sins? Because they're in the same psalm, they're in the same passage in Exodus. How can he do both? And the answer is, he deals with another according to our sins. Tim Keller said it this way, only the cross would reveal what it cost God to punish sin without punishing us. The Father absorbs the penalty for our sin, and He does it out of love for us. How? How does He absorb it? He absorbs it by way of the sacrificial love of our King Jesus, who loves us everlastingly and perfectly. Listen, God knows who we are. He knows who you are. He knows how fragile we can be. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He knows you. He remembers that we are dust. He knows we cannot save ourselves, and so He saves us. And so Christmas is inextricably tied to Easter. You cannot make sense of one without the other. We celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of the second person of the Blessed Trinity, taking on flesh precisely because he came to offer up that flesh, that body and blood as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's why we celebrate. And so as Christmas draws near, we make all of our plans to celebrate and we get our family and our friends together. But as we do that, let us remember what 
we are truly celebrating. And what we are truly celebrating is the birth of our Lord and Savior who would lay down the very life we celebrate swaddled and lying in that manger. Christ was born to address the brokenness we know in this life, reconciling us to our Father. Now, you may be hearing this and feeling like it's just too much. It's an extravagance. But remember, everlasting Father, we're talking about the way that He reconciles children to their Father. How deep does that reconciliation go? If you go to the last verse of the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, and you go all the way to the last verse, that chapter is talking about how the day of the Lord is coming when the Messiah will come and Elijah will prepare the way. And then Malachi starts talking about the kind of redemption and reconciliation that will happen. And he starts laying out the scope and the magnificence of it. How God is going to deliver his people from sin and oppression. And the last verse of the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, speaking of how comprehensive that restoration will be, does not start taking swings at the complex evils of our day. It doesn't start talking about political corruption, war, starvation, climate change, disease, systemic oppression. No. It gets way more surgical than that. Way more surgical than that. To understand the depth of this redeeming work. It says this. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. That's how deep it will go. That's how inescapably intimate that reconciliation will be of all the implications that he could have noted about the coming of Jesus Christ, why does Malachi end with this? I think it's because there is no relationship in the world with a greater capacity for pain than the relationship between a father and a child. From the beginning, the hearts of fathers and children were meant to be knit together. Parents were created to love their children, and children were made to love their parents. And the fallout of humanity's first sin wasn't corrupt government, war, greed, oppression, systemic injustice. All those things would come, and they're here. But no, the fallout of humanity's first sin was estrangement between children and their father. Between our first parents, Adam and Eve, and God, it was children hiding from their father in shame, disillusioned about whether he really loved them because they had been told that he didn't. 
confusion. This hiding in shame, this disillusionment, and the compulsion that comes with it to look out for ourselves from now on because we can't really trust anybody else to do it has driven us apart from one another ever since. And so we circle one another. Even God himself sizing each other up, looking for how to benefit from our relationships while avoid getting hurt. And today is really not that different from Isaiah's day. And to a world like this, the Lord says, a son shall be given and the government will be upon his shoulders and he will be our king. And as our king, he will be our wonderful counselor, all wise. He will be our mighty God. No external foe can defeat him. And now he will be our everlasting father, one who will give us all that we need simply because we are his. When God calls himself our father, it is one of the most affectionate and secure titles that he could give so that we might realize the strength of his devotion to us. And as is often the case in a fallen world, we long for God's design most when we're confronted with the absence of it. Everlasting Father. Some would say, I don't don't even know where to begin thinking about that. So many of us, like those in Malachi's day, we ache over the ruin of a family, prodigal children, emotionally and physically absent fathers, years that pass without feeling like you truly know your own father or your own son or your own daughter or your own mother. What a sweeping, sweeping picture of a broken world. And it is a world we know, isn't it? It's the world we know. And when the brokenness runs that deep, what hope is there unless someone can redeem it? And to this, the Lord says, I will redeem I will turn the hearts of fathers toward their children and the hearts of children toward their fathers. These relationships, he means to heal through the awesome, awesome scope of the saving power of the work of his son Jesus, whom he sent to live and die in our place. There's not one corner of this creation that Jesus doesn't mean to restore. Not one. Because he is our king, 
and the type of king who loves us perfectly as our everlasting father, even those areas of our lives that we may suspect are simply just beyond hope are not. They're not. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. He will turn the hearts of children to their fathers. Christ our King, our everlasting Father. And so this is why we observe the season of Advent. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Because the redeeming work of that baby in a manger, what he came to accomplish would run that deep. It would run deep enough to heal the deepest divisions a human heart can know. So, may your celebration of Christmas be marked by your worship of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what a gift you give us. One of the beauties of the gift that you give us in your Son is that it's a gift that we can't fully comprehend. It's just greater than we know He is. Thank you. Thank you for Him. Thank you for the way that you call your people, Lord, to be in community with one another, for the way that you bring us into these local outposts of believers, the local church, this place where we gather and walk alongside others, places where we experience the depths of pain in our hearts, relational brokenness, and have people to go to with it, to care for us, to walk alongside us, to look us in the eye. Father, I long for the day when the pain and the confusion of these broken relationships will be gone, all the brokenness of this world, and everything will be put right, and we will be able to see the magnificence of the way our King already rules. Um, thank you for your mercy and grace and your kindness. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.